In October 1845, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was getting ready to go to church. And he said while he had his back to the fire, he said a poem came to him as fast as an arrow. And you will recognize these words. Probably a lot of you memorized them when you were growing up in school. I shot an arrow into the air. It fell to earth. I knew not where. For so swiftly it flew, the sight could not follow it in its flight. I breathed a song into the air. It fell to earth. I knew not where. For who has sight so keen and strong that it can follow the flight of a song? Long, long afterward, in an oak I found the arrow still unbroke. And the song from beginning to end I found again in the heart of a friend. Wadsworth's poem, The Arrow and the Song, has been memorized, has been analyzed by countless numbers of people. And there's many ways to find interpretations in a poem like this, but the main message is clear. <coughs> Excuse me. Whenever we shoot an arrow or send out a song, it's going to have an impact. Even years later, that impact can still be felt and seen. Scene. Long, long afterward, after the arrow has been shot into the air, the arrow is found unbroken, sticking into a sturdy oak tree. And the song, long, long after it has been breathed into the air, sung out, is found later, long afterward, in the heart of a friend, from beginning to end. Every word, every word of the song is still felt. Everything we do, everything we say, whether it's forceful like shooting an arrow or it's thoughtful like the words of a song, has lasting effects. And it makes a lasting impact one way or the other. It's the same way as we train, as we shape, as we release our arrows, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Like an arrow, the, the child that we have nurtured, we have loved, we have trained up, we've, we've brought up in the admonition of the Lord, will be released. Every one of them will make an impact. Every one of them is going to strike certain targets in life. And sadly, some of those arrows are going to boomerang. And they're going to hurt the people who love them the most. Others will be aimed at wrong targets and leave a wake of destruction. Sometimes they destroy their own lives. Others are going to live mediocre, mundane lives or maybe frustrated lives with little purpose or, or fulfillment. As someone has said, no one gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to live a mediocre life. That's just the way it turns out. And other arrows are going to live effective, productive lives for Jesus Christ, for his kingdom, and for his glory. Remember that over and over again we have stressed the goal of parenting the overall purpose of, of our arrows in the hand of a warrior of rearing our children. And the purpose of rearing our kids is to make an impact for the Lord, to aim our children for life at targets that are pleasing to God. And in order to fulfill that purpose in rearing our children, we have to constantly and consistently work on, on both ends of the arrow. Last week we considered the fletching side over here on, on your left your left side, <laughs> that we call the moral and spiritual guidance system. Remember how we summed that up? That in giving our children moral and spiritual guidance and directing them at targets that are pleasing to God, to help them develop this, we 
Help them develop a love for Jesus. Remember, love is the key. And we read that again this morning. We want our, to teach our kids to love Jesus with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, with all their might, and to love their neighbor as it themselves. So that gave us four target components, four things we focus on that their love for Jesus is to be developed in these key areas. As we work on shaping their moral and spiritual guidance system on the fletching side of the arrow, we work on developing a love for Jesus with their heart. With their heart. And below that, on the same side, we work on developing a love for Jesus with their soul, with their holy habits. In other words, if our kids develop a love for Jesus with all their heart and with all their soul, they're going to be basically on the right track for a lifetime and for all eternity. Now, the right side of the chart indicates the impact that they will make. This is the difference they're going to make in the world or the impact they're going to make for the kingdom of God. And on that side, we work on sharpening our kids by developing a love for Jesus with their minds, with their heads. Called it heads here because it all starts with H and maybe it sounds clever or something. And by developing a love for Jesus with their hands. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Their hands, how they serve Jesus, how they serve others and they love others. This is how our kids are going to make a difference. It's how they're going to serve the Lord God with their spiritual gifts and their abilities and their, their talents and, and the way that God made them for his purposes with their time and with their, their treasures. And the right side of the arrow, the point, the impact, that's going to be our focus this morning. So how do you develop a love for Jesus with the head, with the mind? How do we train our children to love Jesus with all their minds. Last week I said that I've tried to stay away from statistics and polls that show how corrupt and immoral our culture is, how, it, how it's become. And I said I, I mentioned two last week. I'm also going to mention a couple of things this week because these are important as they relate to our kids in the church. Many polls show that the vast majority of young adults Reared in Christian homes, the kids that are reared in Christian homes, the vast majority are now turning their backs on Christianity. In fact, recent surveys indicate that seven out of every ten Christian kids, seven out of ten, are leaving their faith after high school. We're losing seven out of ten kids that are raised in the church. Only three out of ten Christian kids maintain their faith. So if we are a typical average church, and we have 10 kids in church this morning. One, two, three, four, five, six. We're a little short today. We got six. But if we had 10 here today, if we were a typical church, only three of them would continue after high school. At Grace Baptist Church, that is not going to happen. We are going to build into them the way God wants us to build into them. And it's clear that the battle for our kids' hearts and minds is real. And as parents, we must recognize the gravity of this intense spiritual battle that's going on. So we, we must be diligent to train, disciple, and pray for our children while all the time relying on God's abundant grace. And the other statistic speaks to our culture as a whole, to the trend in our country, because Christianity is on the decline for the first time in our 400-year history. 
The fastest growing religion, when they take surveys about religion in our country, is what is called the nuns, not the N-U-N-S, the N-O-N-E-S, as in none of the above. These are people who still consider themselves religious, but they don't consider themselves religious in any of the ways that you'd ask on a survey. Are you evangelical? Are you Catholic? Are you Muslim? Are you whatever? No, I'm, I'm none of the above. I'm, I'm religious, but I, I'm none of, my, none of the above. And that's the fastest growing religious segment in our country. Now, 85% of my parents' generation, which is called the greatest generation, and for good, for good reason, 85% of my parents' generation called themselves Christian. 85%. Today, only 56% of my children's generation called the millennials, particularly the younger millennials born between 1990 and 1996, only 56% called themselves Christian even though 8 out of 10 of them were raised in Christian homes. Now, CNN reported this data from the Pew Research Center and concludes that each successive generation of Americans includes fewer Christians, Pew has found. To put it simply, older generations of Americans are not passing along their Christian faith as effectively as their forebears. It's not as if young people today are being raised in a way completely different from Christianity, but as adults, they are simply dropping that part of their identity, unquote. We must remember that spiritual victories begin in the home. Train up a child in the way he should go or she should go, and when he is old, what? They will not depart from it. And preparing children to be disciples of Jesus Christ takes a lot of work, right? We also must remember that if we don't train and teach them, somebody else will. Somebody else will. So we must not relinquish our responsibility to equip our kids with God's truth. And we must not give them up to the influence of outside worldly organizations, institutions, and, and individuals. In other words, we've got to stop letting people steal or arrows. And the Bible is clear that Christian parents have a God-given responsibility to continually engage, constantly equip, and train our children with his truth. In a word, this is called discipleship. It's discipleship. Developing a love for Jesus with the mind is the work of discipleship. It's discipling our children. Developing a love for Jesus with the mind is best achieved through, through discipleship that relates to the children's tremendous mental capacity. I was giving thought to this this week, so I thought, I'll just look up some of these things. Because a child's mind is open to truth and is capable of capturing enormous amounts of knowledge. From birth to age five, from birth to age five, a child's brain develops more than at any other time. An early brain development has a lasting impact on the child's ability to learn and succeed in school and in life. And so the quality of a child's experiences in the first few years of life, whether they're positive or negative, helps shape how their brain develops. Now at birth, the average baby's brain is about a quarter of the size of the average adult brain, about one-fourth the size of an adult brain, but incredibly, the baby's brain doubles in the first year. And it keeps growing to about 80% of the adult size by age three. And then 
By 90%, it's nearly full grown uh, when they're age five. And so it grows so fast. You know, I remember in, in architecture school, when we're putting little scale figures in a, in a rendering so people get an idea how big the building is and those kind of things. And, and uh, we had to design a daycare center or something like that. And one of the first things the professor said is, when you put scale figures in it, remember, kids have big heads. <laughs> it is. They, they have big heads because by age five, their brain's 90% the size that it's, it's going to be. And the brain is the command center of the human body. Now, a newborn baby has all the brain cells, all the neurons that they'll have for the rest of their life. Whatever brain cells, whatever neurons that you're born with, that's what you're going to have for the rest of your life. But it's the connections between these brain cells that really make the brain work. Brain connections enable us to move, to think, to communicate, really to do just about everything other than things that are involuntary like our heart beating or breathing or something like that. But if we want to change our breathing, it's still those connections that makes us breathe different. So when the doctor puts a stethoscope on your back and says a deep breath, the connections in your brain allow you to do that. And so in early childhood, the early childhood years, it's crucial for making these connections. And then this next thing just astounded me. In early childhood, when the kids are little, at least one million new neural connections, that is synapses, are made every, what would you guess? One million new ones made every second. <laughs> you know, people who talk about evolution, this is an accident, and those kind of things, go figure that one out. You know, when that kid comes out of the womb, and when they're a toddler, you know, there's a million new connections every, every second. No wonder sometimes you can't get their attention. Wow, look at that, there we go, more than any time. And so these early years are the best opportunity for a child's brain to develop the connections that they need to be healthy and capable and successful adults. And the connections needed for many important higher-level abilities like motivation and self-regulation, problem-solving and communication are formed in these early years or they're not formed. You know, it's harder for these essential brain connections to be formed later in life. And so starting from birth, children develop brain connections through their everyday experiences, what they see, what they touch, what they feel, what they hear, and they are built, the connections are built through positive interaction with their parents, with their parents and then older family members. And by using their sensors and they interact with the world. Now a young child's daily experiences determine which brain connections develop and which will last for a lifetime. So these, in these early years of our children, this mind is just going crazy and all these neurons and, and things are, are connecting. And what they connect then, that's going to last for a lifetime. And here is what studies have shown that is the key factor. Now we know this from scripture, we know this from the Bible, but here's the key factor. A child's relationship with adults in their life, adults in their life are the most important influences on their brain development. Let me repeat that. It's not their interaction with other kids, as important as that is, or with siblings, or with their classmates, or with their teammates, or with the TV set or videos. A child's relationship with 
the adults in their life are the most important influence on their brain development. Loving relationship with responsible, dependable adults and parents are essential to a child's healthy development. And research shows, and go figure, these relationships begin at home with the parents and with the family. In other words, put in biblical terms, discipleship begins in the home. Mind, loving God with all our mind, the wealth of our mind begins in the home. So I want to briefly point out two things that as parents we must keep in mind as we work on developing our kids' love for Jesus with their minds. First of all, we must guard the minds of our children. We've got to guard them. We live in a world where there is a constant battle for the minds of our children. The old cliche from the early days of the computer, and I didn't know we were going to do this song this morning. G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out is still true today. If you put bad things into a computer, you get bad results out. Input, output, what goes in is what comes out. Input, output, that's what it's all about. And I don't know the verses as well, so I won't repeat that. But if you put garbage into your mind, you're going to get garbage out of your life. In fact, listen to what Proverbs 15, 14 says in the New Living Translation. A wise person is hungry for knowledge, while the fool feeds on trash. The fool feeds on trash. The fool feeds on garbage. That might be a good verse to put on a post-it note and stick it right in the middle of your TV screen. <laughs> Until you want to see that show and you pull it off. One of my favorite verses. <laughs> One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 103, or 101, verse 3. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. That applies to the TV set. It applies to the internet. It applies to the, the smartphone. Whenever that thing is worthless, don't do it. Now, we're all feeling conviction right now. And I'm still going to watch part of the football game today. But we got in the habit a long time ago in our family that when it comes to the commercials, we click the volume off immediately. And if it's a picture we don't see, we change the channel. And, uh, you know, with Super Bowl, I used to love to watch the commercials. That was my favorite thing. But in recent years, that's the part I'm turning off now. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes, says the psalmist, because I hate the work of those who fall away, and it shall not fasten its grip on me. Any worthless thing is falling away, and it's grabbing you and taking you with it. It will grab you and suck you in and take it or take you with it. And any nutritionist will tell you that there's three kinds of food for your physical body. There is brain food that makes you smarter. There's actually brain food that makes you smarter. It actually develops the brain connections. It's not making new brain cells, but it's actually increasing those connections. Then there is junk food, which is simple calories. It's not poison, but it is empty calories. And when you get filled with empty calories, you can suffer malnutrition just because you're not getting the good stuff. And then there are toxic foods, which are poison. And the same is true with what you see, what you hear, and what you allow into your mind. Some food is brain food. It will make you smarter. It will make you more godly. It will make you more mature emotionally. Then there's junk food. 
There's so much you can fill your mind with. It's really just stuffing. But it takes up your thinking. It's neither good for bad for you, but you can suffer from spiritual malnutrition because you're taking in so much rotten stuff. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says it's lawful, but it's not helpful. In other words, some things aren't necessarily wrong. Is it wrong to go into uh, Don's Market and buy a Twinkie? You know, I'm not going to tell them that, but, <laughs> but you get too many Twinkies, what, what, what is that going to, to do to you? The Bible tells us to fill our minds with the right things. And as parents and as grandparents and as Sunday school teachers, we must guard the minds of our children. Not only from that which is toxic, and there's lots of toxic stuff out there, but that which is trash, which is junk food, which is worthless, mind-numbing, like so many of the technology things are today. We must work at filling the minds of our children with that which will make them smarter, make them more godly, make them more mature emotionally, and as Chunk Egram would say, make them holy. That's what he says the goal of the child-rearing is, make them whole. In a word, we call that discipleship. That's discipleship. The word disciple means to become a learner, basically, to become a pupil. As parents, we are commanded to develop learners, uh, to make disciples. And that's been the emphasis of one of the key passages of Scripture during this, this series. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. Page 215 in the Little Bible, page 252 in, in the Bigger Bible, 252. Deuteronomy chapter 6 at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall what? Teach them. Teach them diligently to your sons. And, of course, that includes daughters. And she'll talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Teach them. Feed their minds. Nourish their minds with, with the truth, the truth of God's Word. And for our purposes, I want to stress the importance of helping our children become lifelong learners. Lifelong learners. Because that is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so if you please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11 at, at verse 28. 11th chapter of Matthew, the 28th verse, page 1203 and page 1364. Page 1364. Verse 28 of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and what? Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ without being a learner. And a learner is yoked with the master, right? And so, well, I'm following Jesus, and he's way over there someplace. <laughs> you know, but I'm, I'm following Jesus. I'm not always exactly where he's at, but yeah, I'm a follower. No, that's not what discipleship is. That's not learning from him. Uh, what do you do when you take on a yoke? You've seen pictures of that oxen are yoked, and there's two 
semicircle areas, goes over the necks of both animals. And so, so one animal is sharing a burden with the other animal, and it's to lighten the load on both animals. And Jesus wants us to learn from him as we are yoked with him for a lifetime. And so at what point can you cast off the yoke and, and go it alone? Well, at what point can you say, well, I've learned everything Jesus has to teach me? Wrong. <laughs> being a disciple of Jesus Christ is being a lifelong learner. When we disciple our children, we are to teach them to be a lifelong learner of everything that Jesus has commanded. I want to just read the Great Commission to you, what Jesus called the church to do and to teach and I want to personalize it for us as parents. It's Matthew 28, verse 19. Listen to it this way as we personalize it. Parents, make disciples of all your children. Parents, make disciples of all your children so that they will come to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And by the way, you're not on your own. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I always thought the Great Commission would be a great slogan for a church. Put on the door of the church just as people are coming in. Grace Baptist Church, where we teach disciples to obey everything that Jesus commanded. You can apply that to your home and family. Our family, our home, where we teach our children to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Discipleship begins in the home. And how do we know if we love Jesus? Going back to the love key again. Jesus said, he who has my commandments and what? Keeps them. He is the one who loves me. And he will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and make myself known to him. Love Jesus. Keep his commandments. And you're going to see God work in your life. It's just that simple. That's what we need to teach our kids. Love Jesus. Keep his commandments. God works. He's always working, but you're going to see him work in your life. And that will help you apply it to your own children, the teaching of your children. When we as parents and adults understand what it means to be a disciple, we can better teach our children. This is what discipleship is. Discipleship is apprenticing to Jesus Christ for a lifetime. Apprenticing to Jesus Christ for a lifetime. Now, as an architect, I served a three-year apprenticeship. After I graduated from five years of architecture school, and it was a five-year program, so I wasn't that slow. But anyway, I graduated, and I worked for an architect in, in Pocatello, and I was an apprentice. And in order to get my license, I had to apprentice for three years and then pass these exams like you just can't believe. But anyway, it's a requirement for licensing, but that's not the only reason to apprentice yourself to somebody. Because after five years of required schooling, I had a lot of head knowledge, I had a lot of book learning, but I really knew very little about what it really meant to be an architect on a daily basis. I'd never met with a client at that point. I'd never turned out a full set of construction drawings. I'd never even inspected and gone on site for a single project. The reason for an apprenticeship is to attach oneself to a master in order to learn what the master does and do it the way the master does it. Jesus wants us to apprentice ourselves to Jesus Christ so that we can learn what Jesus does and do it the way that Jesus does it. 
That's when we take his yoke upon us. And I want to mention just a few thoughts, and these aren't in the the outline, so you might want to jot these down if I give you enough time. (laughs) A few thoughts about apprenticing ourselves to Jesus Christ. First of all, God doesn't consider it optional in the Christian life. Jesus commanded his disciples to make disciples. Discipleship is not optional. So what does an apprentice have to know to become one? What do you have to know to become an apprentice? Nothing or very little. You know, there's the idea that floats around that there are normal, everyday Christians, and then there are disciples of Jesus Christ or servants of the Lord. He or she is a real servant. They're a real disciple. They're somebody who somehow have it more together than than the rest of us. A disciple is known by his attachment, not by his skills or knowledge. A disciple is known by who you're attached to. A person, if a person had it all together and knew it all, then that person would be the master and wouldn't need to be the apprentice. You don't have to know anything to be a disciple of Jesus Christ except one thing. One thing. Jesus died for my sins, and I've received him. That's all you have to know. And if you know that, you can apprentice yourself to him And you can be a very raw and incompetent beginner. And related to that, when I graduated from architecture school and someone asked me, well, who are you doing your apprenticeship with? I knew in a minute. Without a moment's hesitation, I could tell you the architect to whom I attached myself is. Every apprentice, every disciple knows who their master is. Whether or not whether or not he is indeed an apprentice. You know, you think about this, you know, sometime in the Renaissance, you know, where, where Michelangelo and all these famous sculptors and, and painters, they would have men apprentice to them. And if you saw one of these guys on the street and, or anybody and you asked, are you an apprentice? They would know immediately. Yeah, I'm an apprentice. And if they answered yes, you'd say, well, who are you apprenticing yourself to? And they'd say, Raphael or Michelangelo or, or, or one of these guys. They can tell you exactly what their craft is, what their endeavor is. And it was common in the Middle Ages and even the Renaissance. This is how people got into the crafts and into the trades. They apprenticed themselves when they were about 10 or 11 years old. And then they worked in that trade under the master until... They themselves could become a master, and sometimes they were apprenticed to somebody for a lifetime. Such it is with disciples of Jesus Christ. But I I think of that because you can walk up to an average Christian today and say, are you a disciple? (laughs) You know, and so many people, well, let me think about that. What is a disciple? What, What does that mean? What am I supposed to do? If they are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you should say immediately, I'm a disciple. Well, who's your master? Jesus Christ is my master. This is what we must teach to our children. If we are disciples of Jesus Christ and he is our master, we are attached to him and it doesn't matter if we're new or learning or whatever it is, and we're always learning. And one more thought here. Apprenticing yourself to the master doesn't mean you learn how to do everything the master does. That's not the goal of the Christian life. But in discipleship, we attach ourselves to Jesus Christ to learn how he would do it, what he would do, what he would say if he were saying it. In other words, 
What kind of mechanic would Jesus be? How would Jesus farm that plot of ground? What kind of father, what kind of mother, how would Jesus go about parenting? We've talked about the Bible is just one big parenting book, how the father deals with with his children. How would Jesus parent your children? How would Jesus pastor this church or serve on this particular board or committee or do it in a certain way? That's what we learn when we apprentice ourselves to Jesus Christ. If I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, it means that I am with him to learn from him how to be like him for a lifetime. And one last way that we develop a love for Jesus is with the hands, with the work of service. You know, who is my neighbor? And Jesus went on to tell the parable of the good Samaritan. The question is not here, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? The question is, are you a servant? of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a servant? And we've seen this in our own church. Children enjoy the opportunity of serving, right? They want to please others. They want to interact with other kids. They, they want to know that they matter, that they are special, that they have significance. And We talked about this earlier in the series, and Chuck Ingram's talked about it a couple of times. Every child has two basic human needs. There's the need for security, and there's the need for significance. For security, they need to know that they're unconditionally loved. They're unconditionally loved, and in that, they're secure. In significance, they need to know that they're important, that they are significant. And the older they get, they need to know more and more that that what they do or what they can do is really going to make a difference in the world. And this is best achieved through service opportunities in the church and in their community and in the world. Children must be provided a chance to serve in the local church using their talents, using their time, giving of their treasures, because this is going to provide them with confidence in who they are. It gives them a sense of belonging in the fellowship, a chance to please, an opportunity to see the difference they make, the difference they can make in the lives of others. A couple of weeks ago, I, I got a really neat phone call, and I answered the phone. It was on a Wednesday when I was here at the church, and and the woman on the other end said, uh, I'm calling from Voice of the Martyrs. And I go, oh, wow. <laughs> that, that's that's kind of cool. And she said, we received the letter your wife wrote and the picture of the, your Sunday school. And we were just so impressed, so touched, that this little Sunday school with all those sweet and cute-looking kids, a tiny little Sunday school and a tiny little church, would give in order would give to the voice of the martyrs and and what they had done was uh, they collected their tithes and offerings and uh, they bought for 150 dollars which is called a village pack and in that village pack there's a dvd player there are dvds there are literature there are tracks and this goes to an unreached village someplace in the world and then shortly after that, they sent in another $90 from their tithes and offerings to buy what's called kids' backpacks. And they bought three kids' backpacks. There's a Bible in the language of the child. There's toys, there's shoes, there's other items that go in, in these backpacks. And the lady from Voice of Martyrs, Martyrs said, Is it okay if in our November issue of Kids of Courage on kidsofcourage.com, if we publish your letter, and talk about 
your Sunday school class? They go, yes, <laughs> of course, <laughs> that's okay. They said they can't publish the picture because of the kids because they'd have to get permission from all the parents and all those kinds. And you don't want to put your kids' pictures out there on the Internet that way anyway. But giving the kids the opportunity to service. And now, hey, kids, we've gone global <laughs> with your little gift. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we just do thank you for the kids you have brought to us here at Grace Baptist Church and the kids that come on Monday night and Wednesday night, Lord, and how we are given the opportunity to build into their lives, Father. And uh, it, it is such a blessing. And, and Father, I pray specifically, and, and I know some of the statistics that, that, that we know when kids are raised and reared the way that you have told us, Lord, that we can throw all the statistics out the window. They don't apply anymore when we apply your word to it, Father. And so we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.